So you're titled General Manager Southern Region yeah, for Gold Quarries. Quarries yeah. Okay. Yeah. How big's your team? Um, three to three hundred and fifty people across Victoria and South Australia and Southern New South Wales. So reasonable. Yep. Reasonable group across 25, 25 sort of quarry sites from Mildura to um, southern New South Wales and Whale, Port Augusta, sort of everywhere in between. Okay. It's a reasonable part of the business in Adelaide uh, and Melbourne and then a number of geographic sites outside that. No worries. We'll cover that in a second anyway. No so, um, how quiet do we need to be? Is a um, normal voice okay? Yeah, look, the, the, the tone that we're talking now is fine, absolutely. Okay, Yeah. no worries. Um, okay, so just do an introduction and we'll kick on with it. No worries, good on you. You alright? Yep, good to go. Awesome. G'day, I'm Graham and welcome to the next episode of the Leaders in Technology podcast. I'm here today with Peter Head. Peter is a general manager with Borrell in charge of the southern region uh, for quarries. Thanks for joining us, Peter. No problems. Peter, we were just sort of having a chat um, prior to, to pushing record about the sort of size and, and location of your teams. Can you give us an indication of um, sort of the, the span of the, the people that you lead? Well, I guess um, we... We run an organisation that's uh, based in southern New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. There's uh, about 350 people across uh, 25 quarry operations. Um, it's uh, a manufacturing uh, business uh, and unlike a lot of manufacturing in Australia, it's actually an, an industry that uh, is being invested in uh, and is and is actively growing and uh, employment opportunities for for uh, uh, all spectrum of professionals uh, plant operators uh, um, is is on the up which is a pretty, exi pretty exciting part yeah. of part of Australian industry to be in at the moment it's always good to hear manufacturing in Australia and employment growth yes, it's, it's yes. not a it's not words that often go together no. lately so no um, what are some of the, obviously the, the manufacturing industry has gone mm. through some challenging times uh, across the board, whether mm. it be auto, auto parts or, or car manufacturing um, or, or the, the construction industry. What are some of the key challenges that you've faced over the last sort of um, five years or so? Well, I guess uh, the biggest impact for our organisation is around controlling your resources uh, as as markets ebb and flow, and when I talk about resources, that's uh, the the people part of the organisation, and and I guess matching matching the the people and the expertise to growing and and dropping markets in different areas, and and because we're a geographically spread organisation, simply having the right number of people in the total business doesn't work for an organisation that has a shortfall of people in southern New South Wales or a uh, um, or an excess of people in Wyala where the, the steel industry is quietening down. So that, that part of the resources. Then uh, I guess the other challenge for us is as governments change and policies change, 
maintaining our access to quarrying resources because we are an extractive industries business yep. uh, and maintaining I guess a sensible approach to getting access to um, mining reserves uh, close to the market because it's a, it's a low cost commodity uh, and freight is a big part of, of, uh, of the cost of, uh, cost of goods sold so we need to maintain in an environment where people don't want a quarry next door to them, yep. access to reserves uh, so that we can get low cost production uh, and low cost resources into the market. And then I guess uh, the, the final resource is, is around capital resource as uh, you know, we're a fairly capital intensive industry, large uh, mobile equipment, large crushing equipment and uh, sure. there's always a battle for, there's always a battle for cash to, yes. uh, to be reinvesting. And when we reinvest, it's often in quite lumpy, large amounts of money, and it's about that balance and making sure that we're keeping our resource, uh, keeping keeping our assets at the right standard, so that they're efficient and sure. at the cutting edge, but also um, getting the return on investment for the shareholders. Okay, I noticed you mentioned in there sort of getting the right people in the right places, mm -hmm. um, and obviously that that's a unique challenge for you because you've got. Um, people in remote areas, you know, your, your workforce isn't centred in um, the middle of cities. You mm. can't just put a seek ad on and, mm. um, you know, attract 150 applicants to each job that you have. What's the what's the key to getting those right people in in the right places? Well, there's another aspect to it as well, and uh, and that is that these people are operating in remote environments in heavy industry and uh, as a result we need to make sure that we've got the right risk profile with individuals. We need to be able to trust that they will follow our policies and that they can work, uh, if not unsupervised, in an environment that is perhaps less supervised than a traditional manufacturing environment sure. and, and often in quite harsh environments. And that supervision goes to everything from the safe operation of their equipment to the interaction with the local community because we are you know our business that can have a fairly significant environmental sort of uh, impact on on the environment yep. through to rates of production uh, interface with customers and, and and everything in between and and these 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 people need to be able to work in autonomous teams uh, often in, for periods of time without direct contact with senior management. Sure. How does that um, sort of play out in, in your leadership capacity? You must have to put a lot of trust in, in people that you don't see on a daily basis. Mm. How, do, how does that play out? How do you generate that trust with the team? Well, it's about, it's about trusting the team but also verifying and then when you see something that doesn't line up with the clear messaging that you've got that you actually do something about it there and then that you take the opportunity when you see a problem yep. that you actually act on it and you engage the team and you redirect the team to what the right standard is and that can be anything from um, appropriate use of uh, safety equipment or isolation to to the way that they're uh, the way that they're operating operating the site or, or the, vis the visual amenity of the site from, from outside the site and what our local community sees. So, sure. so that 
I have a, I have a regime of going and visiting my sites. I get to them as often as I can. Some sites might not see me for a couple of months as, a, as the general manager, but when I'm there, I'm there and engaged. I'm not on the phone. I'm not sitting in the office. I'm going to all corners of the site. And I go with some clear messages. I go with some very clear uh, issues that we or opportunities that we've picked up in other areas and I discuss specifically with all of the operators while I'm there those those clear messages uh, and I follow up on the on the topics of conversation that I had from the previous time now that takes discipline I don't just remember what I spoke to the guys uh, in southwest Victoria about when I was there last time last time yep. I've taken some notes so that before I get to site I prepare, I refresh myself on the names of the people so I can call them by their names. Yep. I remember what I spoke to them about and I go to the places where I saw the things that could be improved or weren't meeting the standard that I was expecting and I follow up. And people get that pretty quickly, that there is a follow-up and an accountability. And that the accountability and follow-up is generally about things, starting with the things that actually mean something to them, the things where I... I have seen something as a human being that I'm not comfortable with yep. and that I approach them on that and talk to them about the risks that they are facing by operating the way that they're operating and we discuss a possible solution. Um, we, t we talk about uh, what the outcomes might be, we then discuss and agree on what an action is going to be and pretty quickly they realise that the next time I come to the site I'm going to remember that and we're going to go to that spot and it better be fixed because then we're having a different kind of, kind of conversation around that trust uh, that we're actually following each other through, following through with our actions. Sure. They need to trust me that I will do the things that I say I'm going to do and that they will do the things that they are saying they're going to do and that we're vulnerable enough in, in our dialogue that if we haven't, we have an honest conversation about it, we re-correct so that, you know, and for me, that's about respecting individuals. If I don't have the respect for an individual when I'm at a site to talk to them about where I'm not happy with their performance, well, then I don't actually respect them as an individual. I'm letting them fail. I'm watching them fail. Sure. And, and that can be anything from a safety issue where I'm letting them openly hurt themselves through to their potential career opportunities where I'm letting an individual... Uh, I'm letting an individual not achieve their potential because I'm not pointing out the gaps that they have. And as a leader, as a manager, as a coach, that's exactly what I should be doing. I should be coaching. And yeah. a coach doesn't always have to be a friend. Yep. But coach has to, you know, has to buy into the process and the employee has to trust that the coach has got their best interest at heart. Sure. I want to touch on that a little bit, helping people reach their potential. Mm. Um, because it, it's something that's raised a lot and I think that's uh, most people that I talk to on the podcast and that we get in as guests for leaders in technology um, talk about this aspect um, and a lot of managers um, aren't leaders because they're not helping their people reach potential they're managing tasks hmm. how do you make that jump how do you help someone reach their potential well Part of it, you know, it gets to that old, gets back to that old proverb about feeding someone, or teaching them to hunt, or teaching them to fish. Uh, the easiest thing for me to do, and I have to constantly self-trigger on this, is that when somebody comes to me with a problem, 
because I've got 25 years experience in this industry, I immediately jumped to a solution. Now, it's a solution that worked okay for me last time. Yeah. It may have worked okay for me many times. The problem with jumping to the solution and providing the answer to the problem that the individual has come to me with is that they are then not sensing and not developing their own band of, of, of solution. They're not challenging themselves on, on, on the possible opportunities that might exist. And they're not growing through the process. They're not feeling the stress of having to work through options. They're not working on their problem solving and they're not engaging their teams either about possible solutions. Yeah. So I actively trigger and force myself when a person comes to me with a problem we discuss the problem I ask a lot of open questions about why and how and how else and we work through the particular aspects of the problem until the individual is getting close to a solution and it may include me sending them back to their teams to work through the problem but it's about getting individuals to have the confidence to actually start to make decisions, to problem solve and make decisions on their own. Because ultimately, if you only rely on Peter Head uh, in this process as being the point of decision making, the business is only going to be as good as I can be. And sure. I'm, I'm vulnerable enough to know that I don't have all the answers. I have an answer for every situation, but it's not the best answer. Yep. And by harnessing the broader uh, group, individuals, grow in their roles, they get to test themselves out, they get to work out what their strengths and weaknesses are, and like the strength, and, or like the weakness that I'm just talking about now, in myself, in, in my desire to solve people's problems, I consider that a weakness, um, they too can identify where their weaknesses are and can work on them, and sure. can grow as individuals. Sure, as, how hard was that to do the first few times, to, to not just jump in and, and give a solution? Um, it's still as hard now as it was when I first tried and I find myself deferring to type and having to bring myself back under periods of stress I actively have to slow down yep. and think about what I'm doing because I get to a point where I start to sense I start to feel that I'm being inefficient because I'm spending more time getting to the root cause and solution of a problem by exploring the problem than perhaps my active engineering brain would like to do. <laughs> sure. And I have to stop at that point and say, well, actually, these are exactly the situations. I'm not going to get myself out of that sense of stress unless I can bring the team on and get the team to actively deal with these problems. So right now, as of yesterday, I had a situation that I found myself saying, Peter, you need to stop, you need to ask some open questions, you need to step back from this and you need to bring the team along. Yeah. And um, do you think you arrive at better solutions um, doing it that way than you would just jumping in and, and presenting it yourself? Not always. But on balance, it's a better business. Okay. On balance, absolutely, it's a better business. And, and I also am, uh, I guess, honest enough with myself to say that whilst the outcome that we achieve might not be, in my eyes, a better outcome, uh, 
that could just be that I'm not seeing the potential of the alternative outcome as being a better solution overall. Sure. But it is an outcome. But it is an outcome. Okay. You mentioned um, just briefly sort of um, when you get in stressful situations and, and the things that you do. Um, obviously we all, we all go through stress, we all experience mm -hmm. it at different times and, and every industry has sort of different triggers. What are some of the things that you do as a leader um, to reduce that stress and when you when you feel in that stressful situations, what are some of the things that you do personally to to work through that? I guess dealing with stress, dealing with critical situational peak moments, is all about preparation. Yeah. If you don't prepare for crisis, uh, you will only perform at a fairly limited capacity, and sometimes you'll get lucky, and sometimes you won't. And when I talk about preparation, it's about setting up the good habits and maintaining those good habits so that when you're under stress, those habits are your default, not your natural style. And, you know, one example is that I maintain a rigorous list of, uh, of, uh, of tasks that I, I need to complete. Uh, if I attend a meeting, I take notes. I identify clearly what the actions are that I'm accountable for and sometimes I'll record the actions that others are accountable for. I transfer those into my diary and I still run a, a, a hard copy diary for for activities that I've got to complete okay. and then I forget about them because I know they're in the diary, they're captured and when I turn over to a page it's going to be there and I've maintained that discipline because I know when I get to periods of stress if I don't have that rock-solid discipline of capturing the tasks that need to be completed in a, in a, in a simple fashion, getting them and prioritising them in terms of when they need to be completed, I end up carrying a whole lot more stuff in my brain uh, that I can't then compartmentalise when, uh, because I haven't recorded it anywhere so that when I'm trying to deal with the crisis I don't have the bandwidth to actually be able to deal with it. Sure. And by by maintaining this rigorous process, and it's not a, not a time-consuming process, but it's a, a good habit of capturing those tasks, I then don't fall into a situation where I let other people down because I'm in a period of crisis. Now, that crisis might be my crisis, it might be personal, it might be work, it might be just that I had a bad night's sleep. Sure. But if I, if I don't have that, that, that habit and others in place, I'm going to find myself letting people down and then I'm not reaching the potential that I need to achieve. Sure. I guess the other good habit that I have is that I'm very open with my people around some of these processes that I have and I share with them that it's not that I have an incredible brain that I remember everything. I have a simple mechanism to track the things that yeah. I've agreed that I'm going to do and it's not a trick; it's a habit, um, and I and I maintain that, and I and I encourage others to do so as well. It's about you know, manage manage the stuff with simple tools that is easy to manage, and then you've got the then you've got the twenty percent extra brain capacity to deal with the crisis when it turns up. Sure. Do you encourage? You, obviously, you said you encourage your people to to do similar things. Um, is there people in your team that you know you can go to? in a crisis that'll handle it well and, and others that you just don't touch? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely, and I think I probably I probably spend more time with the ones who struggle in a crisis, and okay. you know that's a bit about that's a bit about the the, the post mortem and the review because yeah, there certainly are people in crisis that don't deal with it well. Yeah, and they're the ones that I spend time with, uh, trying to understand where where they're emotional state goes to in a crisis what are the challenges that they have and we talk about how we can be more effective and, and in some of those situations I provide some coaching um, on the situation we will often use a you know a bit of a five whys after it and, and and work through what the actual problem was and and get people to understand those use those simple to problem solving tools that help them to to break a crisis down into a series of small parts that they can then rationalise sure. and deal with in the future. Uh, and I take it as a personal challenge. Of a pers I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of people who have struggled to deal with pressure, becoming better at dealing with pressure and understanding that tomorrow or the next day or the day after has an infinite potential to be worse than today. <laughs> we just need to be better at dealing with it when it is. So yeah. that you know, next year it will be as equally bad as this year, uh, for all the challenges that we have, uh, uh, is equally as stressful. But if we take this year's learnings and apply them and, and become and develop them as habits, next year it seems like a stressful day is a normal day, yep. and only the really stressful days become the ones that are are under pressure. Sure, you speak a lot about people. Mm. Um, this whole conversation that we've had has been about people. Mm. Um, how much of leadership is about business, so strategy and, and um, the actual business side, and how much is about the people? Oh, for me, it is all about executing your strategy through your people and getting your people to buy into the strategy and understand at the core the information that they can understand. And of course there are there are things that we can't talk about that are that are there might be deals that we're working on or yep. or you know there there may be commercial and confidence things that we can't talk about with a broader audience. But you need to bring them in on the stuff that you can so that you can look them in the eye and they will trust you when you ask them to do something on something that you can't give them the full picture on. Sure. And for me, if, if people don't have your trust around that, that they trust that your motivations are about improving your organisation, uh, about developing your people to improve your organisation, and I guess that's, that's a key point there. Yeah. You don't develop people just to develop people. Ultimately, you have to have the objective of making the organisation a better place, and part of that is developing people because without an organisation, you can have the best people in the world and you've still got nothing. So yeah. You've got to have a purpose. You have to be able to articulate that purpose and you have to bring people along on that journey. And the only way to achieve the strategy, whatever it might be, is to make sure that everybody's pointing in the same direction and is running in that direction. Sure, sure, fantastic. You touched on culture there, briefly. Mm -hmm. um, so building people and building them through the organisation. Uh, two parts to this question, what sort of culture does exists at Boral and how do you get that across to a truck driver that spends his day um, almost in solidarity 
um, how do you how do you build that mm. um, culture? Well, I, it's difficult to talk about what culture exists in an organisation because the culture of an organisation is personal to every individual and what they in the take eye what, of the beholder. in the eye of the beholder. Yep. Um, what I try to instill in our organisation is that everyone's role in this organisation is important. Obviously, somebody has to be the umpire. Yep. Uh, obviously, people are either selected or self-select for more stressful roles in an organisation or roles that are involving uh, increased complexity either in... But, but complexity comes with the physical task. It also comes with the mental challenge. So just because my task might have an element of, of commercial strategy in it, it doesn't mean that the, the operator of my face loader in one of my quarries doesn't have a degree of complexity in his role that you know I need to openly admit to that individual I don't have the capability to complete. Yeah. And we all have tasks. And if we have that culture where all the employees in the business view that their role is important and is integral to the whole, uh, I think the organisation actually can then be pointed in a direction. And sure, we can change that direction, but it's much easier if everyone understands how they fit in that organisation. And for me, that's that's the key part of the culture that I try to instil in our organisation, that my loader operators are integral as my dump truck operators, as my salespeople, uh, as are our customers in the ultimate outcome of achieving you know, a better financial return for our business. Sure. Hang on. It's, it's that culture of it's, it's we and it's us and it's certainly not they and them. And when I hear a machine operator referring to one of his colleagues as they or them, that's when I know I need to intervene because in my view, the culture's not right. We're not a team. We're not working together. Yep. And we need to, you know, when we start talking in our organisation about individuals having lesser jobs, I know how that would make me feel. I'm sure as heck convinced that somebody who is being pointed as having a lesser role in a, in a business or uh, in, in the business probably feels the same way. So I think it goes to that respect and that honesty and that trust so that everybody feels that they are important and if they're important, they'll put that discretionary effort in. Sure. Okay, I want to. We, we've talked a lot about the people and, mm -hmm. and culture and, and, and that sort of aspect of leadership. I want to take a different sort of approach and look at um, obviously leadership involves negotiation mm -hmm. and, and, and business skills um, to be a business leader. Mm -hmm. um, I know in your role you have to deal with a number of external mm -hmm. companies and levels of government. How do you, as a leader, um, develop a strategy to come to the table where everyone at the table might have competing interests and um, get to an outcome that's right for you? Um, I guess that in that space I try I love to know why people want to achieve a certain outcome but the why is always difficult to understand 
So what I personally try to do is respect that people might have a why they're negotiating a certain way uh, and it's important to them and yeah. I don't want to dim diminish it. What I really want to understand when I sit down and if I can't understand it before I sit down that I can tease it out during the conversation, it's the what they're actually after. You know, the why is kind of important, the why is kind of hard to quantify, yeah. but what they're actually after, what they will be comfortable with, what what they will feel like they've achieved an outcome for themselves uh, is is critical for me. And, and that's where I use a lot of open, open questioning. Uh, I try to get my facts before a negotiation if I can't, because sometimes you find yourself in a negotiation when you didn't realise you were. Yeah. You know, you, you step into one, you step yeah. into the breach. But if I find myself in a in a situation and I sense that there is a negotiation taking place, I spend a bit of time really trying to dig around the what the other party is looking for because then I can determine whether our objectives line up and I'm the first in a situation where we find ourselves in that situation that if I don't think our objectives line up, I'll put my hand up and I'll be honest about you know, my position, the company's position as to why we can't go down that path. And for me, that's a bit about that respect piece. The other person and yourself, if you can't do a deal, you can't do a deal. Yeah. Don't, don't try to flog it to death. Just be honest, be happy with uh, the fact that sometimes these things don't work out and move on and find another way. Understand what your next best alternative to this outcome is. And that's all about understanding the other parties and what they're looking for and understanding what they're actually after and teasing that out. And I think in our, our industry, very few negotiations are, um, I guess, one-off transactions that, that you don't end up dealing with those individuals in the future. Yep. So if you approach it with a level of integrity uh, and you build the trust as being someone who follows through with um, what you offer you're going to do and you deliver on it, then the negotiations get easier. Of course, that doesn't mean that at some point in the future, their what and your what don't line up. And when yeah. that happens, well, you know, okay, well, at least we trust each other. We're open enough to say that this is not going to work. We need to look for our other alternatives. And... It's, it seems a pretty simple way of looking at you know negotiation, whether it's with with unions or with employees or uh, uh, negotiating you know internal disputes or with customers. But ultimately, if if you don't have that trust, the people are always going to walk away wondering whether they've got the best outcome. Yeah. And and a key for me is. Don't hold back. Tell people what you can tell them. If there's stuff that you can put on the table to help the negotiation, to get people to understand why you're taking a particular line, put it out there. Yep. Because as humans, we judge each other. We judge each other based on our... Um, you know, I judge you based on what I see, your outputs, yep. but I don't know what's going on in your head. If you can help me understand what's going on in your head and why you're taking a particular direction and why, and why you're looking for a particular outcome, that helps me to understand and maybe I can be empathetic to that situation. And I think that needs to work both ways. Sure, sure. 
So is there an element, well, is there, is there always a win-win situation in a negotiation or is at some point is someone going to walk away the loser? Oh, I think it's always risky to have individuals walk away from a negotiation as the loser and feeling like they were the loser in a negotiation because ultimately for me in that situation if you're backing people into a position where they have to negotiate to a point where they are dissatisfied with the outcome you're creating you're creating an enemy now it can be a real enemy or it can be a business enemy yeah but that's just one more person you've got to be watching uh, <laughs> out for and yeah. you know as competitors we compete fiercely against each other um, for our customers. I need to know that I haven't created an enemy out of a customer necessarily because it just makes it that much harder for me to compete against my competitors to win to win those customers over. And the same thing goes with you know with employees. If I've got three hundred odd employees across uh, twenty five sites, if I've created enemies out of those employees I can have the best strategy in the world but I'm not going to implement it yeah they and just it, won't do it for but, you well it just you you get a compliance you get a, a sort of a passive uh, take up but you really don't get the discretionary effort you don't get the fierce passion to see the organization succeed and sure. the pride and if we don't have pride in our organization we spent a long time here you've got exactly. to want to feel like you're part of something yeah mm. fantastic well, I think that's a that's a great place to um, to finish up. I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, I really appreciate it. I do have one final question. Um, I ask of all the people that I that I get on the podcast. We obviously want to talk to, to business leaders far and wide. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to talk to to great leaders. Uh, who should I talk to next? Oh. That is a question without notice. <laughs> and it stumps everyone. <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a good one. I'm going I'm I'm to take this a different way and suggest that perhaps if we're, as a, as a, as a leader, if I'm uh, suggesting who I need to be who I think you should be talking to. I think we're missing something. I think we need to be talking to the people that we're trying to lead and okay. ask them who they think are the insp- inspirational leaders, who uh, they think are the motivational leaders. Who are the leaders that that that, uh, that our that 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 my employees uh, view as being someone that they will that they will follow. Okay. I'm going to leave it at that. Yes. (laughs) No worries. Um, Thanks very much for your time. No worries. Thanks, Grant. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of our Leadership Podcast Series. Leaders in Technology is for those who want to be powerful, deliberate, strategic thinkers of the future and for whom mediocrity in leadership is unacceptable. If that's you, become an online or a group member today at leadersintechnology.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Until next time, keep smiling.